Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Juvoric. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. This episode's guest is Dr. Paul Comfort from the University of Salford, Manchester. Paul is the program leader for the Masters of Strength and Conditioning at Salford. While at the university, his roles have included Head of Sports Science Support for Salford City Reds Rugby Football League Club from 2008 to 2012, 
coordination of the strength and conditioning program for England's men's lacrosse from 2008 to 2012 also. And he currently coordinates the sports science support for Sales Sharks Rugby Football Union as part of their partnership with the university. On this episode, Paul and I discuss many topics, including Paul's background and his influences. What are the good and not so good things that Paul currently sees within the physical preparation and sports science professions? And what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he's currently seeing? Paul and I discuss about his recent book, Advanced Techniques in Strength and Conditioning, that he co-edited with Anthony Turner. Why they decided to take on such a project. Paul and I discuss about his research around the use of Olympic lifting variations within the physical preparation of athletes. Paul gives us his insights on how research within the sports science and strength and conditioning professions could be improved going forward. Paul gives us a detailed overview of how one should review and study published research. Paul shares with us his biggest lessons he's learned so far in his career in life. Paul shares his top resources. And Paul also shares his top advice to all the listeners. This was a really great interview with Dr. Comfort, and I hope you guys really, really enjoyed. Dr. Paul Comfort, it is an absolute pleasure to have you come on to the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. Just for the listeners, Paul, who might be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine wouldn't be too many people who listen to this podcast, but uh, just fill us in on your background. Okay, no problem. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm currently a reader in strength and conditioning and the program leader for the Masters in Strength and Conditioning at the University of Salford. Um, I've been there now for just over 10 years. Uh, my background prior to that, I worked at the University of uh, Southampton University. Then I worked for a college in, the, in Essex for the University of, um, University of Essex. Then I moved to Middlesex University, um, spent about six years there, and then moved up to Salford, and as I've said, I've been here for about 10 years. Um, my role pretty much throughout that time has been a combination of um, predominantly teaching um, with research when I can squeeze it in, um, which seems to be the same for most people working in universities, and at the same time providing sort of sports science and strength and conditioning support for a range of different athletes, whether it's university athletes, whether it's linking in with some of the sports teams that we've got partnerships with, um, especially while I've been at um, Salford University. We've got such a high density of sports clubs um, <clears throat> within a very short drive from where we are that we sort of get invited in to act as consultants or with the formal partnerships that we've got to provide some additional insight into some of their practices and procedures and update them on some of the latest research, which is a really nice position to be in because actually you can be really honest and open, which some of the staff who are employed there have to be careful what they say because they're worried about where the next paycheck is coming from. <laughs> um, and, it, and it gives them a totally different insight into um, and different perspective perspective into some of the things that they're doing. So it's um it keeps us very current in terms of the practices, um, but also keeps them up to speed with a lot of the research. Great stuff. And uh, I suppose digging back a little bit further, like what got you into strength and conditioning and sports science? I mean, say like from from a younger age, like when you were in school, did you kind of know what you want to do? It was going to be something to do within health or fitness or sport, kind of like a lot of the practitioners who were listening to this. I mean, so was your under, original undergrad, I assume, was in certain like exercise science and then you went from there. So how did that yeah. go about? Um, originally, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, 
and even now when people ask me, I still say I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. So, <laughs> same as me, um, buddy. I still feel like I'm a like I'm a lot younger than I am, which is um, sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. Uh, but yeah, I was always interested in anything to do with exercise and sports, mm. um, especially the actual training aspect to enhance sort of sports performance or whether it's just to improve physical appearance, etc. So all things related to um, to training, really. Yeah. Uh, did my undergraduate degree quite a while ago now um, at what was Cheltenham and Gloucester College of Higher Education, now, now the University of Gloucestershire. Um, then did a master's in exercise and nutrition at the University of Chester. Mm. Um, yeah, and really just sort of progressed on from there. So um, it's, it's been... One of those things I've been interested in the whole time, even before I went to university, I started a little bit later. I think I registered for university when I was 21 and I'd been working as a sort of, well, they weren't called strength and conditioning coaches back then. Um, Certainly not in the UK anyway. So I was working as a sort of a personal trainer, fitness coach for people, um, either focusing on, um, without wanting to offend anybody that was one of my clients back then, either athletes or the generally sort of overweight business people that wanted to try and get in shape and sort their lives out where they dedicated too much time to working. So worked at totally opposite ends of the continuum there. Uh, obviously, the bit that you get really interested in is watching athletes develop and improve their performance, etc. Mm. But also seeing the health benefits as well. And then really just wanted to, I did a whole range of sort of fitness instructor, personal training qualifications, and then just thought, do you know what, I don't know anywhere near enough. Um, and then thought the same, even when I'd finished my undergraduate degree, so started a master's, um at the end of my master's thought I still don't know enough I've got even more questions and that's probably where I am now um even though I've done quite a bit of research I'm still in the position where I think I've still got to learn more uh whether it's learning from other people that have got more experience or just a completely different insight into things or whether it's uh learning from practitioners that look at it from a different point of view learning from sometimes from your students especially the masters and PhD students um especially once they get towards the end of their PhD and they've been focusing on one subject area for sort of three to four years. Um, it's surprising how much information um, you can get from them as well, which is which is great because actually it just helps you and the whole team develop. Um, so yeah, really just a sort of thirst for, for knowledge in how we can improve performance or health to some extent as well. Like that uh, saying that the more you learn, the less you realize, you know, yeah, exactly. And that, that's definitely it. And it's great to, you know, have a range of people that I collaborate with and be able to learn from them. Um, and again, it doesn't matter whether they've got more experience than you, less experience mm. than you. They're going to have a greater level of knowledge of certain things and you've got to use them as a resource. Um, from from a selfish point of view, sometimes, you know, I've, I've done it previously with some of my colleagues Um who would, you know, uh, certainly the two I work most closely with at Salford University, Dr. John McMahon and Dr. Paul Jones, who are phenomenally talented, extremely knowledgeable. And rather than me actually go and spend, you know, a week of reading articles, sometimes I'll just say, right, let's go for a coffee. We can sit down for two hours and I can try and absorb as much of the information they know on the subject area they've just been researching or reading about for the last six months. And I've just done it in a few hours for the price of a coffee or sometimes a beer. Uh, which is a, a great way to try and learn. Um, if you can work in a team like that, it's it's very efficient, very insightful, and um, yeah, quite quite fun as well at times. Yeah. Uh, don't let my boss know I said that. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, I would definitely second what you said there because even in terms of meeting up with someone to inquire about something they've been researching, it also gives you a chance then to 
um, articulate what you've been researching and then it allows you then to consolidate the knowledge that you've gained over you know the the last number of weeks or months in whatever particular area you were you were sort of deep into so it works both ways so it's a uh, it's definitely something that I, I try to, to get out and do and meet my peers regularly. And um, we'd be that through the Skype medium or in person and uh, discuss like what we're currently researching. Because, again, it helps with this whole consolidation of, of our knowledge and, I suppose, bringing the field forward and finding more fulfillment in our lives as well. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, I definitely would um, concur in that. And it's great to have someone like uh, John and Paul in your case. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I would encourage anyone that's something they should probably do, do a lot more of. Yeah, definitely. And as you've just alluded to there with, you know, the use of Skype, etc. It's so easy to connect with people yeah. now. A little bit different if they're down in Australia and New Zealand where you've got to sort out the time zones as well. Yeah. So it's not, you know, three in the morning for, for one of you. Um, but it's great to surround yourself with people are, and, you know, worldwide because you, you can learn so much from from everyone. And it's you've just got to be open to learning and having your ideas challenged and you know, there's stuff that I'll op- openly admit. There's stuff I was teaching ten years ago, which now I'd sit there and say, "Well, it's not necessarily that it's wrong, but there's definitely a much better way of doing it." Yeah. Based on so. the research that's been um, published over the last, you know, five or ten years. Excellent, great stuff. So the next question um, I'm uh, looking forward to asking is just about your influences, Paul. So if I was to ask you who have been the biggest influences on you, not only professionally but also personally, what would your answer be to that? Well, that's, that's that's a difficult one because there's, there's so, so many. Um, certainly within the strength and conditioning field, um, you know, I can remember during my studies reading so much from uh, people like uh, Dr. Mike Stone, Mike McGuigan, Rob Newton, um, probably Greg Half a little bit later on, um, and looking at the way their research has developed and progressed and how that's it, you know, sort of linked in with... Um, making sure it's very applied, beneficial to sports teams, how they interact with them. Uh, certainly I think from, in terms of the professional side of things, that's they're the sort of people that have been the most influential. And apologies if I, to anyone that I've missed, if I've missed them out. <laughs> um, but just seeing how they achieve things, how things have developed over the last sort of 15, 20 years with some of those guys and the research they've done Um yeah, they're, they're probably the, the, the biggest influences out there. Great stuff, great stuff. And in, in, would you say that those guys have personally been a big influence on you too? Um, yeah, I think so. You know, whether it's from meeting them at different times and discussing things with them, whether it's uh, via email exchange, whether it's just from reading their research. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's even speaking to their previous PhD students or the PhD students of their PhD students, you know, because these guys have been in the game for a long time and getting their perspective on it as well as, you know, some of those individuals themselves um, chatting to them and say, right, okay, so at East Tennessee State University, how does the doctoral program fit? How do you integrate within sport, yeah. within, you know, assisting with delivery and then thinking for myself, especially now, how can we do something like that at the University of Salford, mm-hmm. where it fits, where it's appropriate? How can we try and make sure that our doctoral students are coming out at the same sort of standard as, as you're getting for those students from Edith Cowan University in Australia or East Tennessee State University um, in America? And what can we do to try and you know make sure that our students can go on and provide the same sort of influence as some of their students have done in the past do you, and are still doing? Do you know Harold Gray? No, no, no. It's just that he—he's an English guy. He went. He was at East Tennessee, 
I think yeah. he, was, he was there around the same time as Mike Isertel was going through his PhD. So I, was just, right. I was just wondering. But uh, moving on, um, another question I'm, I'm really uh, keen to get your answer on. In terms of the good and also the not-so-good things that you currently see within the sports science and physical preparation professions, yep. what, what, what would you say are the good and not-so-good things that you're seeing? And with the not-so-good things, Paul, what sort of solutions would you offer to, uh, to help amend those? Um, well, I think that the good stuff is people doing the basic stuff right and doing it consistently. So building an appropriate foundation with the athletes, um, making sure they can move appropriately, making sure you're monitoring them effectively and using the data effectively um, to inform the training practices, um, recovery strategies, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's, it's getting the basic stuff right. Too many people that I see sort of get wound up in the latest trend, the most fashionable or um, type of training or piece of equipment, um, and then not sticking with the basic stuff. Uh, I think that's the biggest problem in the sort of fashionable training methods and the trendy equipment that comes out. And, you know, it goes through peaks and troughs. Um, you've got to get the, the, the basic stuff right first. And there's too many um, clubs that don't tend to get that right. So, you know, I suppose in answer to your question, it's a case of not believing blindly what you see promoted, whether it's through social media. So social media can be fantastic. Great way to get information out to people in a user friendly format. But anyone can write a blog. Anyone can set up their own website. And sometimes it's not necessarily that they're trying to mislead people. Sometimes they just don't know any better. Um and you can make something look or sound really fancy on a website, but actually it may be an inferior method of training or actually sometimes wrong. Um, and challenging those perspectives. Have a look. Is there any research? Now, bear in mind, a lot of the research comes from people who have trained people in different ways and it's been effective. So somebody will then say, well, OK, well, let's compare that type of training to another type of training or multiple types of training. And sometimes we find that they are really effective training methods, which had no real scientific grounding to start with. Somebody came up with a range of physiological or biomechanical principles or a, a training method based on those principles, which they thought would be beneficial. And, you know, you've only got to look back to some of the really early texts. So some of the information in super training by Mal Sif and some of the other texts that were around um, or produced around the same sort of time where now research is showing that those types of training methods can be effective with things like shock training, post-activation potentiation, the use of um, cluster sets or inter-repetition rest. Um, so those things shouldn't be discounted, but you've got to look and go, okay, is there a scientific basis for doing this type of training? Um, and will it be effective? So and funny. a lot of people don't do that. Mm, it's so funny you mentioned there, you know, like, you know, reading a blog because I don't know about you, but like kind of the the sort of progression of my journey in, in this profession, you know, you just kind of, and it's all part of the journey, but you kind of cringe when you think about like certain stances you had on certain things. And like, if you were really like uh, que questioned on like evidence for it, you just had none, like, you know, you were just basing it off other people's opinions. So, yeah. uh, you know, as, as, a, as I've matured more, like I've become a lot more, trying to become a lot more evidence-based. But again, and as you kind of alluded to there, like, everything's on a spectrum you don't want to be you don't want to be at either end of the spectrum where like all you do has to be evidence-based and you won't do anything outside of that you won't try anything new and but at the same time you still don't want to be at the other end where 
you just are you've no idea in terms of research evidence base or, or principles that may potentially explain certain mechanisms so it's always finding that happy balance but yeah i can look back now and cringe at like certain uh certain maybe things i i thought might have had a quote-unquote truth around them i was like uh. yeah yeah but again it's it's all part it's all part of learning it's all part of the journey yeah, definitely. And I think that's the one thing you've got to be open minded and you've got to be willing to adapt and develop. And if you can, that's that's great. You you know, you're going to have a, a much longer career than somebody that sticks to this is the only way to do it because I've always done it for the last 20 years. Um, <clears throat> unless you've got a phenomenal reputation or you've been really lucky and you've worked with some very high level athletes who are always going to be high level athletes, no matter what anyone else did with them. Mm. Um, and I think, it, you know, in light of some of the fashionable and trendy things, I think the other thing that people need to be aware of is some of the, uh, you know, equipment manufacturers are making all, all sorts of different types of equipment for velocity-based training, um, the use of force plates or force platforms, etc. They're becoming more and more cost-effective, more affordable. But again, the problem is sometimes people believe blindly what the manufacturers claim. Yeah. And you've always got to take a step back and go, well, the manufacturer is trying to sell me this product. So they're going to tell me it does, you know, everything that it can possibly do and it does it correctly. Sometimes when you start questioning that, some of the systems don't do exactly what they say on the tin, which is, you know, potentially problematic and can misinform you. So I think when people start getting too bogged down with some of the more technical aspects and using some technology and equipment, You've still got to make sure you've done the basic coaching right. The athletes can move. You've planned things appropriately. And that actually, it's not just a case of using the these bits of equipment. It's understanding what the data means that you actually get out of them, mm. which, again, sometimes you can see that, that you know somebody will pick up on one variable. Yeah, actually, there's 20 other variables that would be far more insightful. Exactly. I mean, like the sports technology industry, obviously, it's, it's, it's booming currently. But, I mean, it's the same as every other industry in terms of, you look at pharma, you look at the food industry, it's all about bottom dollar and money. And it's funny though, you mentioned that um, more and more I'm actually hearing that from other um, professionals in our in our field, that like a lot of these technology companies who are selling the actual technology, they're, they're like when questioned, they actually don't have really good background knowledge in, in actually how this technology works. They're just really good marketers and sellers. So it definitely, yep. it definitely, um, it definitely pay it would pay people to, to or it would be very important for people to pay heed to definitely doing some background research into the technology because it's funny too because only recently i was reading reading up because my knowledge currently on like uh, like deep knowledge would say on like say like gps systems wouldn't be like wouldn't have been like i have the basic understanding of gps systems, but it is some current research and god even looking into some of the metrics and that and like how like little evidence there is and how like there's still a lot of like well we don't really know if this is truly what it measures there's a lot of like gray yeah. area of gps it's like holy crap there's like a lot of bad like not bad but there is no real solid foundation for a lot of the justification of the use of gps systems and um, when you really dig into it in terms of like so one one thing for instance there's no like uh there's no um real standardization of what high speed run truly is and that needs to be individualized yeah. not only to the sport but even maybe the position within the sport so you can yep. get like you can get really funky reading, so it's just uh, you brought that point up, and I suppose maybe it was on top of my mind because it, it's something I researched there over the last few weeks. So definitely, uh, again, like as you alluded to, it's funny you said be open minded. I I would have always said be open minded, but I actually changed it over the years. Uh, kind of a an indirect mentor of mine is a guy called Dr. Brian Walsh, who's a naturopathic doctor, He's fantastic in terms of hormone, blood chemistry, and, and, and blood sugar regulation. But uh, he he put up a slide one day and he said, you know, 
never be closed-minded. Everyone in the audience is like, yeah, yeah, everyone, know, everyone here knows that. I mean, that makes sense. But And then the very next slide was, he said, but don't be open-minded. And everyone's like, ooh, where's he going with this? And then he just goes, <laughs> he, he goes, be critically minded. So he, yeah. he, he, he basically said closed-minded is like you're a house and everything's shut down. The doors are closed, the windows are closed, nothing gets in, you're just closed. But he's like, open-minded is the exact opposite. It's like you're aloof. He's like, all oh, the doors are open, the windows are open. He says, everything gets in, all the shit gets in, all the dust gets in. And he's like, uh, you know, you just, you're one of those people that, oh, everything's great. And he's like, but he's like a critically minded person. Like the doors, windows are open, but they have like those filters, yep. you know, those, yep. those kind of guardrails. So he's just like, be critically minded. So just going back to the technology piece, it's, you know, definitely be critically minded. But that's a great answer. I can, uh, I can ramble. So I, I apologize. You were the guest here on the whole side. No, no, that's fine. I think going back to what you just mentioned there with critically minded, it's <clears throat> making sure people have the right understanding of what critical means, you know, and it's looking at things with a balanced argument. Uh, we see it all the time with students, especially when you first try and get them to be critical. They look at all the bad things. Yeah, yeah. So, so you critique it and it's right, this is wrong, that's wrong. Okay, but what are the good things and why are those things wrong? Is there a reason why it, you know, the study's been done in that way? So, yeah, it's supposed to be an open-minded but also sceptical at the same time and <clears throat> making sure that you make, you know, very well-informed um, judgments or conclusions about things rather than just believing blindly what a manufacturer is telling you or somebody's had a gold medalist so you must adopt their training strategy well is you know is there a good scientific basis for what they've done and why it's worked well so we've, we've kind of touched on evidence base here moving on from that you know you brought out a book at the end of last year with anthony turner an absolutely fantastic book so advanced strengthening initiating evidence-based approach where you had a number of people contribute to the book so i suppose the, starting off with this the, the two main questions are why did you and Anthony decide to, to do the book, and um, and then also what what were your what are your aspirations for it? Okay, well, first of all, um, Anthony should take a lot of the credit because he actually contacted me initially saying, "Look, I'm thinking about putting this book together. Would you like to write it with me?" Um, he sent me across a, a rough outline which developed and evolved over time, and <clears throat> initially I looked at it and thought, you know, there's no way the two of us are going to be able to do this. We haven't got enough knowledge or expertise across the breadth of things we want to cover. And so let's not try and do it ourselves. Let's edit it. Let's try and get some of the best practitioners and researchers from across the world um, to write the different chapters for it. And we'll try and guide them and steer them where we can and where it's appropriate. Now, that's interesting when, you know, they're some of the best practitioners and researchers. And sometimes you have to say, well... This is this is a little bit biased in this direction. Can you also, you know, look at some of these other because everyone's going to have their own bias, especially if they've published hundreds of papers themselves or always train their athletes in a certain way. Brilliant, uh, brilliant. So we tried to do that to make sure it was the a really well-rounded text which covers a lot of the research, but also how it fits in practice. Mm. Because that's the problem. A lot of the research will have been done in very controlled environments, or it will be off-season or pre-season, and doesn't take into account necessarily the majority of the year when it's you know, when you're in the competitive season, depending on the sport. Or it was, so, the, or, or it was the soleus muscle of a rat. <laughs> yes, yeah, which is a little bit out of context, or without naming any names, you know, talking about that muscle actions. Um, in dogs, cats, frogs, and rats, and assuming that that's the same in a human. Um, but I won't dwell on that any further. Um, but there are certainly some some um, evidence out there which is probably not the best thing to, to apply. Um, so, yeah, we really wanted to make sure that we got all this information out there, got the best people to put it together, tried to sort of get practice 
people that either were researchers and practitioners and were you know heavily involved in both so as an example the sort of change direction agility chapter uh, dr sophia nymphias who has done massive amounts of fantastic research but she's extremely applied at the same time mm. all trying to get people where it's you know trying to pair up if appropriate if possible a really good uh, person who's focuses on research but does a little bit of applied work with a very much more applied practitioner to get that balanced view of it and you know it's the the title of the book is probably misleading advanced strength and conditioning uh, it's definitely an evidence-based approach but most of it isn't advanced most of it is doing the basics and doing them well um uh, was I think just, that's the key just, message just a question on that was uh, i i know i could be wrong but i I've a feeling that wasn't exactly what you guys wanted to call it, was it? Did you, did you guys want to call it Advanced Training Edition, or was that more the publisher? Do you know what? It, it, it's so long ago, I can't remember. <laughs> um, you know, it would probably be about two and a half, three years ago that we actually yeah. started this whole process. So, um, obviously, the, the publishers do influence some of the things, but I can't remember now whether that was the title we actually chose or not. Um, and if it was, is, is that because, well, in front of me now, I've got, three different books that have all got strength and conditioning in the title so yeah. to differentiate you just put that it's advanced but like i said <clears throat> there are some more advanced concepts in there but i think, think the key take-home message from any strength and conditioning text or any coaches do the basics and do them well all right so in in this book you, you contribute to a lot of chapters but i suppose i'm gonna i'm gonna um, merge this question into um into the next question here so like Maybe for the listeners, not maybe, uh, for the listeners, could you get into like your uh, main area of research and like I know it's been around Olympic weightlifting and Olympic weightlifting derivatives and variations and, and their carryover sports forms because you do also have a chapter in um, advanced transition around um, Olympic weightlifting derivatives and variations and how yep. they could potentially help sport performance. So maybe get into just like your overall research. And particularly as uh, around the weightlifting variations of derivatives, why that particular area interests you so much? Um, and yeah, just take it from there. Yeah, well, in you know, in in general, a lot of the stuff that we we tend to do at the University of Salford with our small team of researchers is looking at strength and power development, strength and power characteristics, and how to identify um, accurately um, changes in force time characteristics, jump height, change of direction, performance, etc. Um, the weightlifting side of things I got into because I was just around the time that I started working at the University of Salford, a, a series of students started asking questions about which variation is best. Is it best to start from the floor, from the knee, um, from the hang, from mid-thigh? Which, which variation is best? We teach all of them. Um, we get athletes to perform all the different variations, and there's a huge variety of different variations that you, you can perform. Um, and one of the students just said, well, OK, if we if the transition phase um, stimulates a stretch shortened cycle, surely if you go from the knee or if you go from the floor and you use the transition phase, you stimulate the stretch shortened cycle, you should get a greater force, power, etc. compared to going from mid thigh. Um, and then what about if you compare it from the floor to starting at the knee or from the hang down to the knee and then progress from there? <clears throat> Would you get more? force or power from the floor because you've got more time to apply force because you go through a greater range of motion mm -hmm. in which case if you're applying force for a longer period of time and the force is equal or um, slightly higher you get a greater impulse so you should have a higher velocity and therefore greater power so which one's best 
So we looked at the research, which had only really assessed um, barbell velocity at that stage in competition in weightlifters. <clears throat> and obviously with weightlifters, it's going to be slightly different because they're extremely highly skilled at these movements. And all the research showed that the highest forces, velocities, etc., come from the second pull, so from mid-thigh. Yeah. But again, is that due to the fact you've already accelerated the bar? Um, what about if we break the exercises down, do them from mid-thigh or from the knee? And there really wasn't any evidence out there to support that. So we sort of thought, okay, well, one of the rugby clubs we're working with does all these different variations. Let's get in there, let's test them, and let's see what happens. So we got ethical approval, lined it up with a series of different um, student projects, went in, tested the athletes, and it really sort of developed from there. So we found that from mid-thigh, you, you actually generated the highest force, power, and rate of force development. Um and that was greater than going from the floor or from the knee. From the floor, from the knee was slightly better than going from the floor. But actually, you can't lift as much weight from mid-thigh and you can't lift as much weight from the knee as you can from the floor because you've got more time to apply force, gain momentum, and you get a greater um, displacement of the barbell if you start from the floor. Mm. Um, so again, it all depends on what your ultimate goal is. And then once we looked at the pull from mid-thigh, and found that if we compared just the pull, excluding the catch phase, um, to the mid-thigh power clean, we were getting the comparable forces, powers, and rates of force development. And then one advantage is if you want to train strength speed, so far more emphasis on strength or the load or the force production, you can go above your 1RM. Mm -hmm. So you obviously your 1RM power clean is limited by how much you can displace the barbell so you can catch it the displacement of the barbell doesn't matter if you're only doing a mid-thigh pull or a pull from the knee or a pull from the floor even. So then we started looking at a range of um, loads pulling from mid-thigh. <clears throat> and around the same time, uh, Dr. Tim Sukumel started doing some research comparing weightlifting variations with the jump shrug, hang high pull, hang power clean, which started to fill in a few more gaps, which was great. Um, so really it was a series of questions from students and from some of the um, strength and conditioning coaches that we were working with that we couldn't answer. And then we decided, well, okay, let's, let's look at these. And the more, as we sort of mentioned earlier, the more we research, the more we find out, the more that we find out we didn't know mm -hmm. and the greater number of variations that we could perform and would need to then go on and analyze um, and try and find out that information, uh, which then luckily I, I met, uh, Dr. Tim Sukumel at the National Strength and Conditioning Association conference five or six years ago now. Um, luckily, it was in Las Vegas, so it's not a place, bad place to go to for a conference. Nice. And and since then, we've sort of started collaborating on a range of projects in those area, uh, in that area where appropriate. Uh, and we've just finished a training study which was actually funded by the national strength and conditioning association uh, we were lucky enough to be successful in securing an international collaboration grant from them a couple of years ago now um, so rather than just looking at the acute effects and if we use a certain variation of a weightlifting derivative or we use a certain load how does this affect those sort of kinetic and kinematic outputs but if we apply this in training what happens do we get a a better adaptive response do we get a worse adaptive response and really sort of you know where do we go from there so we've just finished that and actually found so far from matching um intensity and volume that there's no difference whether you actually do the catch variations or the pulling variations 
Um, and that sort of makes sense because the propulsive phase of it um, is exactly the same. Um, so in terms of looking at how it would improve force production during an isometric mid-fire pull, during jumps, etc., we were getting very, very similar improvements in performance in, in the athletes that we tested. Now, the problem is, um, if you've seen the article that we published in January 2017 in the Strength and Conditioning Journal, where we sort of proposed being able to train the full force velocity continuum mm -hmm. with weightlifting derivatives by manipulating both the exercise variation and the load, mm -hmm. what that shows is that in reality, the way you would apply this would not be to match volumes or to match intensities. So... Dr. Sukumel is currently working on a follow-up to the study that we've just submitted for publication, looking at, again, two groups where they're matched in terms of the intensity and volume. So if one group does a power clean, the other one does a clean pull. If one does a hang power clean, the other one does a hang pull. But throwing in another group, which use sort of load-optimized um, loads. So if you're doing pulling variations, we go above your 1RM which from our research has shown is the most effective for, for maximizing force. And if you're using a jump shrug or a hang high pull and you want to maximize velocity, you take the load down to anywhere to about 30 to 45% of your 1RM power clean, which this the initial study we've submitted for publication obviously didn't do that because we wanted to match intensity and volume to see if there was a difference just based on those exercises rather than due to it being a different intensity and volume. Um, that being said, at the moment, with the preliminary data that we've collected or that Tim's collected, it seems that if we do the sort of supermaximal above 100% of 1RM pulls and then the submaximal loads, the four, uh, you know, 35, 40, 45% of 1RM during the high velocity movements of jump shrugs, etc., that tends to balance out and give us a, a volume which is, it is slightly different, but it's not that far off. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how those results pan out. Does that result in, you know, greater force and rate of force development or rapid force production than we get just with the, the normal training loads? Um, in, uh, in, in your book, um, Advanced Training Instrumentality, so chapter 15, you've got weighted sports forms, and uh, you have a, a really nice figure in here, it's 15.16, and it kind of shows the weightlifting variations to particular um to particular biomolecular qualities or physical capacities that you might be trying to enhance so like you have down here if you're in a strength endurance block you might do these but then continue on if you're in a max strength block through an absolute strength to a strength speed to a speed strength emphasis block you, these are the variations you might use could you, could you maybe just like um get into or alludicate on on these certain variations and, and why maybe you, you kind of touched on it there a little bit in terms of like the pulls for super maximal versus maybe some more like mid type uh, shrugs. Can, we, can yeah. you maybe just for the listeners get a little more into why maybe certain exercises may suit, um, may, may suit an exercise prescription better depending on what the emphasis is within that training block. Yeah, well, again, as, as I sort of mentioned a moment ago, it's, it's, it's not, unfortunately, it's not as simple as just putting it down to, the um exercise itself is mm. the exercise and the Body's relative intensity, intensity that, yeah. that you perform at so a mid-thigh pull we get the highest velocities at the lightest loads down at 40 percent of 1rm although that's not as high a velocity as you can get from a jump shrug mm. now again that sort of makes sense 
because in terms of the name jump shrug, you're aiming to jump, you accelerate through the complete range of motion and aim to jump off the floor, so you end up with a higher velocity. If you moved at the same velocity during a mid-thigh pull, you would jump. So it would become a counter-movement shrug. Um, so even though we can manipulate the load um, to change the force velocity characteristics to make it more force dominant with a higher load or more velocity dominant with a lighter load, certain exercises are going to be preferential in terms of maximizing that velocity. Mm -hmm. So if you're adding in a counter movement to it, you're going to stimulate the stretch shorten cycle. So a jump shrug, you start with the bar at mid thigh, you move depending on the load, rapidly down to the knee. Mm -hmm. If it's a heavy load, it's not quite so rapid. Um, as soon as the bar reaches the height of the patella, then you rapidly go through a transition, triple extend, and aim to jump off the floor. Mm. And that's stimulation of the stretch shorten cycle and the intent which is there allows you to generate much higher velocities. Now, we've actually gone on, one of our, my PhD students um, and one of our uh, two of our pre previous undergrads then sort of looked at this in a bit more detail. Uh, we haven't published it yet, but comparing going from the knee or going doing a hang pull or going from mid-thigh comparing to a counter-movement shrug. So either starting at mid-thigh statically mm -hmm. or starting stood upright, dip to mid-thigh, almost like a counter-movement jump sort of movement with the lower limbs and then rapidly extend. And every time that addition of the counter-movement um, allows you to increase both force and velocity of movement, yeah. which sort of makes sense makes if sense, you're yeah. simulating the stretch shorten cycle. Yeah. The one thing we didn't expect to see is when you do that at really high loads, and it's worth trying, but cautiously, go above 100% of your 1RM and do a counter movement shrug or do a hang pull. So you go down to the knee. Like I said, you'll, you'll decrease the velocity of movement because you've got to then generate forces to decrease your momentum to stop the barbell by the time it reaches the knee and then re-accelerate back up. So we actually expected as load increased, that difference between the exercise might decrease because the movement velocity ends up being so much slower. But it still appears to give us the highest um, forces and velocities if we had that counter movement. One caveat to that is you've got to make sure your athletes are really, really good at performing these movements whether it's from a static position or whether it's with the counter movement, because it's very easy for them to actually get pulled into a position of spinal flexion if they're not as proficient as you would like them. So again, in term, not just in terms of altering force and velocity, um, but also in terms of a progression for the athletes as their development improves, especially if you look at it as more of a long-term athlete development model, you can start the exercises from a static position with the barbell on blocks, etc. If you've got them, and it's much easier, you can get them, to get your athletes, get the posture perfect. <clears throat> and if the posture is perfect in the start position, hopefully everything goes well from there on during the propulsion phase. And as they get better and more proficient, then you can make the movement far more dynamic and a little bit more challenging in that way. But I suppose going back to your question is, if you've got the if something which adds a counter movement and you're using a light load, it definitely maximizes um, velocity and results in a slightly higher force than you get if you start from a static position. And then in terms of focusing on um, the force end of the continuum, any pulling variation where you can go above your 1RM power clean allows you to then obviously use loads which are higher and will emphasize force production, again, as long as your athlete can maintain that posture. So we've tried testing people above 140% of 1RM, and some people can do it really effectively. Some people 
are awful. So you have to terminate testing there. Um, you know, we've had people going up to 160, 180% of their 1RM with some of the pulling variations, depending on what they, they can maintain posture during those tasks. And it's obvious on your first repetition if they can or not. You know, it's, it's, it's ironic and 22 degree that like, uh, that like uh, in, in that chapter and in some of the uh, research and work you've done now with Tim, that I've seen this counter movement uh, variation come uh, uh, being prescribed by you guys. Because for a long time, like I used to do this, I used to use it as a tool in the toolbox in terms of I used to do like different variations where if we were kind of concentrating more on starting and acceleration capabilities in terms of starting acceleration strength, we would go static. And, yeah. and it was funny because the guys used to complain, like, ah, but I can't lift as much this way. I was like, yeah, because we're going from a static position. Today's acceleration emphasis, and I want it, I want, I want us to have to go from a static position. Whereas on more of our uh, max velocity days where we might be doing some um, absolute speed work, then I was like, right now I'll, I'll let you do the counter movement because the velocity of the bar is going to be a little bit higher. Or, you know, you could use more snatch variations that day because, again, the displacements for the usually the velocity is higher as well. But I would allow a counter movement, and it was just I never used to see people like prescribe. Like I used to write it down on the program as CM, yep. CM hang power clean or CM hang power snatch. Like so, they knew it was counter movement. Whereas I'd write down NCM non counter movement, so the guys knew that it was mid tight. But because uh, it made sense, it was like obviously when you stand fall yep. and dip, you're it's just like a counter movement. Jump. You're going to get some elastic uh, energy uh, storage and and utilization of stretch shortening cycle because you're you're obviously you're obviously getting some stretch in the posterior chain. But uh, yeah, it made sense. One one caveat that to that though, Paul. Um, I was listening. I'm I'm fairly good friends with Cameron Joss, who's the head of the Franco's Sports Performance over in America, and he was on Mike Roberts's podcast, and he actually brought up a good point. He he was actually he's actually traded the ideas around where he actually says he's putting the non counter movement exercises on the more velocity based days and the counter movement on the more force days, and his reason for that now he's not doing Olympic lifts, he's doing like trap bar jumps. Yep. Or he's doing jumping variations. So whether he's whether he's going to start from a non-counter static position, or he's allowing like a dip and then jumps or counter move. But his rationale to switch it around was that he was like, with a counter movement, you have a longer time to apply force because you're dipping down and then you're going. Even though there is a stress shortening cycle, which correlate more maybe to allow more velocity. But he's like, you're spending longer to have to accumulate that force. Where he's like, when you're going like straight into like just a pure concentric effort, he was like. That, you know you're spending way less time to have to be able to to express that so he's been toying around with actually switching those qualities on days whereas usually you would put your static concentric based stuff on your acceleration days and then your more sort of elastic velocity stuff on your yep. max velocity days he's actually switched around and that was his rationale because it's like with a counter movement you actually take longer to display the force so he's just that, that was just a counter point he brought up and i, I thought it was a, yeah, well, a fair point I suppose if you look at the movement time in, in, in general, yes, you obviously with a counter movement, you've got that sort of descent phase. <clears throat> um, so you'll almost have an unweighting phase like a counter movement jump, followed by a braking phase, followed by a propulsion phase. Um, so the total movement time is going to be longer. Mm. But actually your propulsion phase is quicker when you do a counter movement. Yeah. So yeah. you've actually got less time. Um, because you stimulate the stretch shorten cycle, and what you end up with is you end up with a slightly greater impulse um, due to uh, greater force rather than a greater time. Um, so the time of that propulsion phase, so if you're going down to the knee and then going from the knee, from the knee back up until you take off with a, um, with a jump shrug, 
is takes less time than if you start from the knee and then jump from there because you stimulate the stretch shorten cycle you get additional force um and because you're moving at a higher velocity the duration is, is decreased so the problem is if you're comparing a movement that has an unweighting uh, an eccentric or braking phase followed by a concentric or propulsion phase to something that only has the concentric and propulsion phase well no shit is going to take a lot longer to do it when um when you're doing it adding in an extra phase to it mm-hmm. but it's the propulsion phase which really determines what you do on the in, in terms of jumping or generating that velocity. It, it, it'd be interesting then to see that countermove where you go down to the knee and back up versus, let's say, a concentric purely from the second pull. So the, the, the kinematics yep. will be different, as in the joint angles will be different, you know what I mean? But then maybe the time scales might be more equal then because there's less displacement, say, if you were just going from just the, the top of the second pull versus going down and back up. So it might be interesting because I suppose the. The, the, the kind of prevailing thought process at, at max velocity speed now is that, you know, the, like the top of the second pole, those joint angles would very much almost match the joint angles when you strike the ground in max velocity run in terms of the knee angle yeah. and hip angle. Yeah. And also now that the prevailing thought is that your muscles actually act isometrically rather than eccentrically, you know, they're more isometric. So maybe like building up some tension and then going straight into that that actual, whether it's a shrug or the actual, you're going to do a, a clean movement where you catch or a snatch move or whatever. Um, yeah, it, be, it yeah. might be interesting though to, to match those. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, if, if you actually compare a pull from mid-thigh to a counter-movement shrug, so you do actually match the the joint kinematics, you you still end up with that, exactly the same thing that I've just described, that the propulsion phase is shorter um, because you end up moving at a higher velocity. Um in the counter movement shrug compared to a mid thigh pull. But I so I would say I would say no if you didn't match the kinematics. So like if you if you were to let if you were to stand tall, bring the bar all the way down to your knees to do the counter movement and then yep. do your variation versus now the bar is like basically in my crotch and going yep. from, and doing straight concentric from there. Yeah. Yeah. So I just make sure. Anyway, no, this, that, that's all great stuff and it, nerd out about that all day but uh <laughs> just mo- moving on so that's fantastic a, a question though i'm really eager to ask you is in, in terms of research within the strength and conditioning profession and the sports science profession how do you feel we could make it better going forward okay um i think that there's the, there's a few different things one is to make sure and you know I'm, we're all going to be guilty of this to some extent um, because you've got certain word counts you're trying to adhere to when you publish your research, but yeah. making sure that your methods are as detailed as possible when you publish research mm-hmm. so that people can re- reproduce them. So, you know, stating every aspect of um, how you've instructed the athletes, what terminology you've used, because that does affect um, performance, how you've collected the data, if it's forced time data, have you used raw data, have you smoothed it? If it's jumping, for example, when did you identify the onset of movement? Yeah. Uh, because all those different things and how you treat the data result in um, different kinetic and kinematic outputs once you've gone through the process of analysing it. So I think that's that's a really simple one, although it is difficult because, like I said, you're restricted with word count or um, sometimes a reviewer might come back and say, look, this level of detail isn't required or the editor might due to word count, etc. But that's one thing to try and focus on to make sure it's really easy for somebody to replicate the, the, the research in the future or replicate those methods. 
Um, but I think that the biggest thing is probably making sure that you can make your research impactful. So where possible, and you know, Edith Cowan University do this really well uh, with all the stuff that Sophia Nymphius and Greg Haff are doing down there, where they in and previously Jeremy Shepherd, mm. where they um, integrate a lot of their research with sports teams that they've got links with. Um, so whether it's the Hurley Surf Institute um, or whether it's um, softball, weightlifting, whatever it is they're doing down in Edith Cowan University, the stuff they're doing at Leeds Beckett University in the UK that uh, uh, Professor Ben Jones is leading, um, where they're looking at getting specific questions which are meaningful and impactful to those different sports and trying to then identify what the key performance characteristics are, etc., and making sure that's informed by the coaching staff, the sports science staff, the medical staff. So the results can be applied immediately and they can improve practice straight away, both within those clubs. And then when it's published, you know, a year or two later, everyone can start to adopt some of those different practices that may be preferential. And that makes it really useful. I think the traditional view of the way people did research would be you do really controlled, really science based, lab based experiments. And it might be on um, single muscle fibers or on isolated, you know, knee extension, knee flexion, whatever it might be. Now, while that, from a science point of view, that's fantastic. When you then try and extrapolate that out and say, does that work whole body? Um, most of the time it doesn't. Mm. Uh, so I think <clears throat> personally, and this is only my personal opinion, I think one of the best approaches is to say, right, what does work? And then we can answer why it works. Because if we can say this, you know, we've got three different training methods. This one is better. This one results in greater adaptive response over a shorter period of time and our athlete's performance improves more. Then we can do the more controlled experiments afterwards. Say, right, okay, so what is the exact reason this works? Why does this work better than the other methods? Once we find out why and we fully understand the mechanism, then we can change direction again and go back and say well we've identified this is the exact mechanism so if we tweak this slightly how can we enhance that response and then we can refine those training methods rather than starting off with you know individual muscle cells electrically stimulated in a petri dish and then say let's see if this will work when we do it as uh, a single joint activity to a whole body activity and um what you tend to find then is a lot of the times it just doesn't work mm. um so I think using those sorts of models in going from the really applied and then back engineering afterwards is probably the best way to have impact. It allows you to get good athletes to be able to work with and perform the interventions on or even the acute testing uh, because they can see the benefits to them. And it has that direct impact. And, you know, it's sports science, strength and conditioning research. You want that impact. There's no good starting doing the research now. And 15, 20 years down the line, somebody says, oh, that looks like a good idea because your research has probably moved on by then and actually something else is much better. So if you can get people adopting those approaches from the start, and like I said, it's, it's being done well at a few few institutions. So the more that we can do that, the better. Um, it's not always as simple as it sounds to get people to buy into it and actually adopt um, that, or sometimes the coach then will change their mind and the whole um, research project has to be scrapped. But if you get the, everyone to buy into it, um, whether it's at the academy level, whether it's at sort of the elite professional um, level with the senior teams, or whether you do proof of concept at a lower level first, that seems to be the best way to get impactful research, which is meaningful and answers the questions that practitioners want as well. Reverse engineering. I like that. I like that term you use. Yeah, big fan. I think that's a fantastic answer too. 
Um, and I think the, the other thing is, is when you're doing your research as well, is that, and you see this with students, students will turn around and go, but I've not found anything. Well, that's great. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's hard to publish that sort of research. But I think one thing you've got to do is do everything within your methods to control them and make sure where possible you can control them. But do everything you can to reject your hypotheses. Because yeah. if you've done that, then you know that you've eliminated your bias as much as possible, or hopefully, and at the same time, you know that your finding is more likely, not definitely, due to be you know a, a real finding. It's not just through chance. Paul, I wonder if, if actually, uh, this wasn't one of the questions I'd, I'd sent you, but something I, I would love for you to maybe um, shed some light on for the listeners, because I know, for me personally, that... As someone who's like I'm currently in the second year of my master's, Mary's, and I actually was an early school leaver and don't have an undergraduate, so I, I was allowed to do the the non degree entry with, with Mary's, and so I had a lot to catch up on in terms of understanding how to read research and and dissect research. And as, just for the listeners, Paul, Paul knows this only too well because I sent them many emails and I am going, Paul, why did you do this in your paper? And what about this? And he was always so nice. And he goes, this is why, and that's why. So just for like the younger coaches or people, not even younger, but just people who are inexperienced when it comes to being able to read and disseminate research, what would your, your, your tips be? And, and the reason I bring this up is I heard a fantastic podcast with Nick Winkleman. Um, it was with Jeremy Boom. I'm really sure it was in Jeremy Boom's podcast. And it was just around the time Nick had finished PhD. And he basically gave like this 20-minute, like absolute, you don't have to go for 20 minutes, but... Uh, he basically gave me the first few minutes all about like how to just like read research and collect it and get it yep. together. So could you maybe give us like a a little sort of um you know sort of like review on like how to read a paper, what you should look for. I know you said look at the methods and means, but also too maybe how can someone go about being just better at collecting uh, research? Like so like you know obviously there's things like PubMed and there's certain things you can sign up to. Yep. So yep. Maybe just give fill us in on all that. Yeah, well, I think you've got, you know, you've got to know exactly what topic you're trying to research first and try and make it initially as focused as possible. Okay. <clears throat> you know, if you just type into PubMed jump testing, you're going to get so much information. Um, so what you need to do is make sure you refine your search where possible, where appropriate. You know, so simple one for that for refining your search is human studies only. Don't use animal studies. Um while they are appropriate in some context, if you start looking at jumping, you're going to get stuff on frogs, goats, dogs, cats, all sorts of animals, um, <clears throat> which you can't really apply because they work in a complete, you know, you can't compare the way that the muscles or tendons of a frog work compared to a human. They're completely different, um, <clears throat> which sort of makes sense, but you still see that in some reviews. Um, so, Initially, refine your search down. Once you get all of your um, articles that you're going to, to, to read, read through them all. Read through the entire thing. Don't do the stereotypical student thing of, I'm going to read the abstract, because there's lots of information that can't fit in the abstract. And for anyone that's tried writing up research or writing a dissertation, you might be given anything from 150 to 300 words for your abstract. That has to convey and summarize your... Um, purpose for the study, your experimental approach to the study, a bit of information about the subjects, the results and the application of your findings in 150 to 300 words. You have to miss out the non-essential information. 
And I've seen this numerous times, especially, you know, with students doing it. But on social media, I've seen some of my papers where people have tweeted about it and someone's gone, this is rubbish. How can you do this? Or how could you have done that? And they've clearly only read the abstract because within the paper, you will have stated the reasons you didn't do certain things or the reasons you did do certain things are actually the bit of information they want is within the paper but it d- wasn't part of the main question. So it's in, it's not in the abstract mm. and they've only read the abstract. So you miss far too much by doing that. So the main thing is read the, read the entire paper, not just read the abstract first, obviously, but then that will give you a feel for it. Read the entire thing and then subcategorize those that I'll, I'll do it either into folders if I'm doing it online or be sat at my desk and literally just put the papers in different piles Right, okay, which ones find positive results, which find negative results, which ones sit in the middle? And then from there, go back through them. Those that find positive results, did they use the same methods? And I normally construct a table um, to put all this information in so I don't have to read back through every paper multiple times. So you can construct a table in Word or Excel. And then when you find the positive findings and the negative findings, why? Is it purely methodological differences? Is it training status of, the, of your athletes and the amount of times that people will state these were elite athletes? Now, they could be elite athletes. And a few years ago at the University of Salford, we worked with the England lacrosse team, England men's lacrosse. So they're as elite as you can get for a team in the UK playing lacrosse. Mm. Obviously, they're the national squad. They're not well-trained athletes. These guys were, they weren't even semi-professional. If they went abroad to compete, they were paying to go abroad and compete. They were training in the evenings off their own back, you know, four nights a week, plus at least a day at the weekend. If you look to their jump performances, their sprint performances, their strength levels, they were elite in terms of the competition level they were at, but they weren't well trained. And that's the problem. As soon as you start comparing it based on the categorization of the athletes and their training status based on what the author's written, um, it always sounds a bit sexier to state that you've worked with elite athletes. But are they really? So what you need to do is look at things like training status, um, because that will have a massive impact. If you're looking at a training study, athletes that are already really strong, and there's plenty of evidence out there to support this, athletes that can squat double body mass um, don't get massive increases in strength over eight weeks. Athletes that have never really done any structured strength training, proper strength training with high loads, so football players in the UK or soccer if, if, if you're in America, Um, they'll adapt rapidly to strength training because their strength training is generally, not in all cases, but generally suboptimal. And that's me being polite. It's normally um, strength endurance or hypertrophy. So you give them a high load strength training stimulus, they'll adapt much more rapidly to somebody that is already really strong. And that sort of makes sense. So a lot of the times there are really simple reasons why when you look at the research, there are contrasting findings from that research. If that doesn't explain it, and even if it does, you still need to look in more detail. How did they assess performance? What were the measures they used? Um, did they really assess strength or was actually strength endurance? Um, you know, was it maximal force production? If it was max force or if it was jump height, how did they assess jump height? There's so many different ways of assessing these variables. Um, you know, so you might have five or six different studies that all show, you know, the average jump height in a rugby league squad might be 56 centimetres in one study and 36 in another. Why? How did they assess jump height? Mm. Did one use a just jump mat that one of my colleagues, Dr. John McMahon, showed overestimates massively with jump height because it inflates um, flight time? Mm-hmm. Um, 
would did they use a vertex or a jump in reach? In which case, most people don't zero um, from you being stood plantar flexed, but that's when you take off from. So that's really your jump height. And if you're comparing it to flight time, it's once your feet leave the ground. And if you're doing a jumping reach, you also naturally will reach up using the upper body as well. You've got arm swing in there. So if you compare that to somebody that used um, a force plate, hands on hips, and actually assessed it from velocity of center and mass at takeoff, you've got so many different variables in there and things that can influence your jump height. There's no way those things are going to be comparable. And it would be the same if you looked at aerobic fitness. Have they used the yo-yo test, the bleep test? Have they, were they tested using direct gas analysis? If they were, was that on a cyclogometer? Was it on a treadmill? Was it an incremental test? Did they change intensity? Did they change running velocity? Did they change incline? They all affect things differently. And there's enough research out there to show that actually one method may overestimate by 5, 10, 15%, depending on which ones you're comparing. So you can actually start looking at their methods and pull all of it apart and go, well, okay, is there a logical explanation for why they got different findings? And if there is, fantastic. And nine times out of 10, you'll find that there are quite a few logical explanations for why the differences may have occurred um, between different individuals based on the methods they've used or the training status of the athletes. Um, but it also means, and this is where it gets really tough, especially you know when you're looking at students at an undergraduate level or a very applied coach who maybe, you know, has fantastic level of coaching qualifications, but doesn't understand physiology or biomechanics to the level that you would hope they would need to, is they really need to understand the methods of assessment and the impact of different methods of assessment on the resultant output or variables. So jump height, aerobic fitness, whatever it might be. And without that information, it makes it really, really difficult um, and again, I suppose the problem is that comes back to one of the things of what can be wrong with strength and conditioning in sports science is you'll buy a piece of software which will manually do all that for you, or you'll buy the hardware that comes with the software, and you just assume that everything works perfectly, and it spits out the variables, and that's great. You need to understand the limitations of that, mm -hmm. um, and how that compares to maybe how you used to do the testing. So if you used to use a jump mat and now you use a force plate, if you were using a just jump mat. And now using a force plate, even if you're using flight time, although why would you use flight time if you've got a force plate? Uh, but if you're still using flight time from the just jump, and there's probably other jump mats which do the same sort of thing, um, you've got to end up with an inflated um, flight time and therefore jump height from the just jump. So you need to know that. Otherwise, you test your whole squad of athletes and immediately you're going to be going, oh, shit, they're all jumping 10 centimeters less. You really don't want to go and tell the head of performance or the head coach that because it looks awful. Uh, and you might start panicking you've done something wrong, which it could just be the equipment. Mm. Um, so it's not just in terms of the research being able to do that. It's in the applied setting as well. You've got to have a good understanding of some of those things. Um, and again, the nice thing is in my position is um, we get to meet and go in, into different clubs when they've got some of those issues that they've changed their methods and their procedures and suddenly gone, hang on a minute, now I'm getting totally different um, results. Why is this? My athletes haven't got that much worse. Or sometimes there's no way my athletes have just had a 15% improvement. Um, <clears throat> and then you'll go in and educate them. But not everybody else is in you know, that, that position of sort of luxury where they can contact somebody and say, can you come in? Can you help us? Can you advise us? Uh, and I think that's an area which inherently we probably don't upskill students enough at university. Um, I say we don't do it. They also don't help themselves because 
this is going to show my age now. When I first went to uni, people used to say to you, what are you reading for your degree? Students don't read anymore. Um, <laughs> they do, probably not as much as you'd like them to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, the th you've got to upskill, you've got to take ownership of it. And if you're going to start critiquing, even if it is something like jump testing, isometric mid-thigh pull testing, why are there all these differences um, across the literature? Which is better? Which is the best way of doing it? What's optimal? Um, so when you're critiquing the research, you've got to have a really good understanding of all the, the underpinning physiology and biomechanics. I suppose the main thing is if you're working in a club environment, and you're not sure as long as you standardize your testing procedures you collect data in the same way you analyze it in the same way you interpret it in the same way whether it's the best way or not if you're just comparing your athletes now to your athletes six months ago or in yeah. six months time it's comparable because you've standardized exactly what you're yeah. doing yeah. biggest issue is in the applied setting when you've got five different practitioners all thinking they're doing the same testing but all doing it differently mm. it's funny like what 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 you do then by the way everything you just said there was brilliant thanks so much for that insight that's fantastic information it's exactly what i wanted to get out of that question in terms of uh, your answer but what what you sort of remind me of there too is like uh, body fats you know when you take someone's body fat and like they'll say oh i had my body fat taken by some some, some other guy or some other coach uh, you yeah. know a few months ago or last year or even like last week and then you say uh, and there's also oh, what am i and you're like oh this says you're 12 percent 12 percent but last week I was eight percent. It's like, and then you try, you're trying to explain to them. Well, listen, they use a different calculation system. They did four side versus seven side, or even, yeah. even if it was the exact same system and the exact same like uh, site method. So let's say it was seven side, and we both use the same software. Like we're two different practitioners that would have different methods as well. Like so. Yeah. But as as you said, as long as you're standardizing it, even though it might be the best way to measure the certain metric you're looking for. That's the key thing, but uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a very important thing that a lot of people miss out on. Particularly, and it's it's great you brought up the the, the jump measurements. So that's something that I've discussed with a lot of times because like you just you can't compare jump um uh, jump results if you don't know exactly the, the equipment used and how the jumps are done. Because the first question I always ask is what equi what equipment that were hands used? Because I mean yeah. that's that's going to be a huge variation then on the results. Yeah, definitely. So, Paul, moving on, because I, I know we're, we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, um, so we won't get to every single question. Happen. Listen, we can always schedule a, a part two and three and four as the, as the year goes on, <laughs> um, if, if, we can, if we can nail our schedules together. But um, just your, your biggest lessons, Paul, that you've learned uh, so far in your career and your life. So what would your top three lessons be, would you say? Um, I suppose to um, take advice more. Mm. Um, not necessarily that I've not taken advice, but seek advice more and then take it on board. Sit back and reflect. And, you know, you get this from reviewers' comments when you submit something for publication, as well as to talking to practitioners. But you can get three people review an article. One says it's fantastic, publish it. The other one says this is awful. Why the hell has this been done in this way? And again, it's not meaning that one person's right and one's wrong. Look at that viewpoint. Are they looking at it from a totally different perspective? And make sure you can argue the case from multiple perspectives. And at the same time, as, you know, as well as getting that advice and taking it on board, don't always change your practices because of it, because that person might be wrong. Um, so I suppose it's almost going back to the point you ma made earlier about not necessarily being open-minded, but being sceptical to some extent and being critical and thinking, why? Is this out of context? Yeah. Um, 
Can't and making sure that. you take that advice and you take take the opportunities that are given to you mm. um, and make the most of them. Context is king. Yeah. And I suppose the, the biggest thing is always strive to do better. Um, and the one thing that is very easy to do, <laughs> um, and everyone does this, I've not met anyone that doesn't do it, it's very easy to sit there and whinge and bitch about things. Yeah. Um, and dwell on the negative things. Mm. But actually, and, you know, I'll openly admit, we, my research team, we had a, a meeting before Christmas, invited our PhD students in, and we sat there and we went through a whole range of different things. These are the things we need to do moving forwards and everything else. And I sat there and then went, right, some of this sounds a bit negative. But what we're doing is trying to identify the things that we could have done better. So we've done a fantastic job. We've published more research than we've ever published before. We've had more people present at conferences. Um, you know, we've had more book chapters published. Uh, we've been invited to go and speak at different places, into clubs. All of the stuff that you want to be doing, we've done more of which is fantastic. We've got a great, a bigger team of um, PhD students now than we've ever had, which allows us to progress at an even faster rate, um, which is quite a daunting um, thought. But at the end, it was a case saying, right, let's forget the negative aspects. If it came across as negative, this is just so that we can learn from it, reflect upon it, and how can we do things better? How can we avoid making some of those mistakes? Whether there are things that are beyond our control, just ignore them. Don't worry about it. Don't let it stress you out. You know, work on the things you can control you can do better but also to you know to thank people and reward them at times for doing a really good job not if they've just done the job that they're meant to be doing necessarily but if you know if they've gone over and above they've really achieved something fantastic or they've helped you achieve something fa fantastic those people need credit mm. you know and i don't think we always do that enough and like I said, I'm really lucky to work with uh, the people that I work with. There's a, a small team of us. There's a couple of others that um, do a little bit more of the injury prevention rehabilitation side of research, and that spans across into the um, sort of performance side of things more. But actually, we've got some really, really good hardworking PhD students as well that we have to give a lot of the credit to because they're the people that really drive things forwards when we get asked to go and sit in meetings or when we're teaching and then carry on with data collection. But I suppose it's a case of don't dwell on the negatives, learn from the negatives, learn, learn from the bad things, but actually focus on the positives and get things moving, things moving forward. Because, you know, we're in a most people go in either to working in sport or working in academia in sports science, strength and conditioning because they've got a real passion for it. Mm. And it's horrible to see when that passion dies in a person. Actually, that passion should grow and be developed in nurtured in some cases and i suppose that that's the one thing is actually sometimes taking a step back and go wow look at what we've achieved but then not also also not being satisfied with that and going okay we've done brilliantly how can we do this better now how can we move forwards how can we make it more impactful how can we align with other research groups or teams and how can we expand this to make it even more impactful i think too uh, perspective is a huge thing in that you can look at what 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 you, you could look at something and perceive it to be negative, but so and perceive it to be a bad thing. But you could also look at that quote unquote negative and see it as an opportunity. So I mean, yeah. it, it really comes down to is this is this perceived negative? Is it a, an obstacle or is it an opportunity? And it, it really just comes a lot down to to the mindset of the individual and like like so much feeds into everyone's makeup and who they are as, as an individual. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't know if you've 
you know, listen to any of my previous podcasts, but I'd say nearly every podcast I nearly say this is that everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. I mean, the, the environment greatly shapes each one of us and every experience that we've had up until the very moments, up until this very moment in our lives has had a profound impact on how we see and perceive reality. So, you know, you, you could have, again, we notice you, you can have two individuals who have two completely different perspectives faced with the same obstacle and one sees it as a negative, one sees it as a positive terms, one sees it as an obstacle, one sees it as an opportunity. So in terms of your research there with your PhD students, like absolutely, I 100% agree, you absolutely need to uh, embrace what you're doing uh, very well already and then conversely, instead of being like, well, here's what we're doing wrong or bad, say, no, no, just... Yeah. This is just feedback. I mean, and that if we were to step back and look at the bigger picture of life, that's what evolution is. Evolution is a feedback mechanism. So, like, if you even look like I always say, like the structure of our brain, we had a reptilian brain, and then that only got us so far, and then evolution gave us quote unquote negative. If you want to say it, it gave us a negative feedback. It said, listen, if we need to keep going uh, forward here in our evolution, we need we need something more than just a reptilian brain. And we went limbic system and mammalian brain. That got us so far. Evolution gave us some feedback. We need more cortex. We need more frontal lobes and who knows what's next now in our evolution but yeah, yeah. It's, it's purely down to perspective you can either see things as uh, obstacles or opportunities and i think if, if, if people learn to be more of the growth mindset as carol dweck uh, spoke about they'd see more things as opportunities and i think it would help everyone in not only our profession but the world but uh, and i say that as an individual who listen who who's constantly struggling with that too on a moment to moment yeah. day-to-day basis yeah. so but that's a great well, i think with that with that as well, with you know the obstacles, it's also how you you know you it, it, some things are obstacles, mm. and you can turn them into opportunities. Sure exactly. It's how you do that. Do you jump over the obstacle? Do you go around it, or do you smash right through it? Mm. And that all depends on what that obstacle is and what the context of it is, um, and whether it's worth the time and effort to do it as well. Sometimes, absolutely. Um, you know, could your time be spent much better doing doing other things? Um, and I'm sure we can all sit there and say there's things we've done in the past where you think, why the hell did I bother with that? um and again it's just learning from it and also in some of those situations if you're not sure what to do pick up the phone send an email contact somebody and ask advice um and get help because there's so many people out there that will be able to give you an answer to stuff which i'm not saying don't go and try and find the answer yourself but if you've been trying and you sit there and think how the hell do i do this and you know somebody else is is already doing that Contact them. See if they can give you a help and advice. In most people, it's surprising how willing they are to help and advise and help you develop, and they'll benefit from it as well most of the time. So absolutely, um, that's, that's yeah, why that's why I reached out to you, and you were willing to help me and, and come on to the podcast too. So absolutely, you're you're, you're uh, preaching to the choir. Are you still there? Yep. Yep. I'm still oh. here. Oh, okay. Uh, so wrapping up here, Paul, I literally just have four questions. They're, they're pretty short, so your answers can be uh, as short or as long as you want. Yeah, it's up to yourself. But uh, what would your top resource and then also your top advice be to all of the listeners? And with the with both the advice and resources here, these can be anything. So like the advice can be anything. It doesn't have to be just to our profession. It can be life advice. And the resource doesn't have to be just to like the strangest profession. It could be a book, a podcast, a video, an individual, a course, and it could be to do with anything like spirituality, self-development, whatever. Well, I think that the top resources is really is the sort of the strength and conditioning and um, sports science community Mm. as a whole. You know, reach out to different people, speak to them about things, listen to podcasts, um, you know, look at who's on there, who's going to give you a lot of information, who's going to give you the insight, 
textbooks are brilliant, obviously, especially the one that we've had published. Yeah, I know that. That would be in the show notes. Yeah. I, I can plug because I have it here too. I, I certainly wouldn't say, you know, read this textbook or read that textbook. I've got about five on a desk in front of me, all with strength and conditioning in the title, and they all add something different. Um, there is no Bible as such for strength and conditioning. There's so many resources out there. There's so many different viewpoints. So I suppose it's the strength and conditioning community as a whole is the biggest resource there because some people have fantastic experiences. Um, so use all of that to your advantage. Um, and it's not just a case, of, and I think you mentioned this earlier, it's not just a case of learning from textbooks or from journals and from research, but learning from applied practice, yeah. thinking about how the two meet in the middle. And that's the best resource. One of the things I find is, you know, very, very useful is just going to different strength and conditioning conferences, seminars, meeting people, discussing with them and networking. Mm. Um, and that's really, really useful. And it's surprising how much you can gain from going to those sorts of events. Great stuff. Great stuff. And I, I know you, you kind of gave some advice in that, but have you got any specific other maybe life advice outside of our profession or anything you'd say to any listeners? Uh, I suppose, really, um, well, try and stay humble. Don't suddenly think you've made it because there's always people way above you. Um, and try and learn from those people. And then at the same time, you know, set your sights high, but plan for it. So if you want to be at a certain point in, you know, whatever the role might be, whether it's or you know, whether it's your health, your family life, whatever, just keep chipping away at things and strive to to be the best you can be at whatever you're doing. Uh, and then you'll, you know, but also don't compromise on your values. All right, last two questions. What, uh, what book or books are you currently reading right now? Now, I wish I could could give you something really interesting to answer here at the moment. None. <laughs> I'm far too busy trying to write up um, a series of papers, cool. a couple of book chapters, and finish off editing a book that has to be sent to the the, the full manuscript has to be sent to the publishers on the first of March. So um, for the last few months, I haven't been reading anything other than stuff related to that, well, which what, I would love to. What was the last book you read then, if you can remember? Last book I read? I can't remember off the top of my head. Like I said, it's, it's been a few months. It's um, been so sort of wrapped up in getting this other book yeah. with Anthony Turner finished and the new one we're doing now and trying to then get back on track with some of the research that no, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Um, That's all right. That's all right. It it would be some some novel which actually had no mean or purpose to it, and I could just completely switch off to. Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, listen, I I, uh, I do that too. So I kind of what I always do is throughout the whole day up until the evening, it's always usually to do with something academic and and uh, yep. nonfiction, and then in the in the evening time it might be fiction. Or usually what I read is people's autobiography. So currently I'm, yeah. I'm going through a JFK biography at night time, but uh, yeah, that's yeah. similar yeah. to me. So the very last question, the big question. So I actually didn't give you this. I just said it was a big question at the end. So uh, I'm over in Manchester, and I'm like, Paul, I'm over here. Would you want to meet up for dinner? And you're like, absolutely. And I say, right, it's on me, and I'm going to bring my magic powers with me. And you're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I can bring people back from the dead. And you're like, mm, I'm starting to rethink this dinner. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway so we, we, go, we go to dinner, and I have my magic powers, and I say, listen, you can invite five people to this dinner. A lot, so it's me, you, and five people you can bring. You can, uh, and you can bring people who are either dead or alive to the center. Who are you bringing and why? Now that is a big question. And don't and don't be like, oh, I can't answer God. You got to give me something here. I'm spotting it. Yeah. No, that, that that that's a very big question. I suppose 
you'd probably want people that have been very, very successful, very, very influential in a range of different fields. Because um, actually, when you're in a situation where you get that, you tend to find that there are certain qualities that they all have. There are certain things that they all do to achieve success in those fields, whether that's politics, whether it's, you know, people on films, TV, whether it's in sport, whether it's people that have worked with them. Um, so, yeah, I think you'd, you'd have to try and pick people from a range of different areas and to get that insight and the, the, also the difference from those life experiences. To so, make drop, it a, so, so drop some names and I want names. Some names? I want five people. Right. Now that is difficult. Um, see, this is one where you should have given me a question on this first so I can actually uh, think about this it properly. Why not? I don't because I've had lots of people who are like, <laughs> ah, ah, as a command, just give me five people. And yeah. literally you can change it. I mean, you can email me there and say, actually, I'd add this guy and I just put that, I'll put that into the podcast and the show notes afterwards. Yeah, no, um... I can't give you an answer on that straight away. Oh, I'd come on, Paul. No, you can't sell it. That there's so so many people that you could sort of pull out and then, you know, I'm going through it in my mind, think, oh, you could go for this person or that person. Oh no, this but one would be it. better. That's it. We're going to so dinner. It's... We're going to dinner like now, and I need the five names. I'm ringing right now. You gotta come on. <laughs> come on. You said you got magic powers. You can bring them along at any point. Um, oh, I can bring five people who are dead or alive, but I can't go past the five. That's that's as far as the magic yeah, powers go. Yeah. No, I, I, honestly, I can't give you an answer of exactly what five it would be. Like I said, it would have to be people that have been very influential. Um, from whatever walk of life, that really wouldn't matter. Um, just to, I suppose, what would also be very interesting is if they came from completely different conflicting viewpoints, just to give you an interesting um, talk over dinner. Um, but yeah, I can't think off the top of my head any exact people that it would be. Oh, Paul. You're just, you're, I'm disappointed by the answer now. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> that's all right. It's all right. Uh, okay, so Paul, listen, that's it for today. Uh, if you do think of five people, send them on to me and I'll stick them into the yeah, show. Yeah, we'll I'll, I'll have a think. Yeah, no problem. Stay, just stay online for a minute and wrap up. So, guys, yeah, what no a problem. great what a great episode with Dr. Paul Comfort. Uh, absolute gentleman. We were trying to set this up for the last number of months, to be honest. But things got busy over Christmas for both of us. And it was finally great to connect with him. So definitely check out his book, Advanced uh, Strength and Conditioning, uh, Evidence-Based Approach. And I'll have that in the show notes. So it's a great book that he released, Anthony Turner. Um, Paul is on ResearchGate. All of his uh, research is up there. Um, and Paul, if people wanted to contact you, what would be the best way? Would it be your email? Would that would that be okay to share? Or Yeah, email or Twitter. So cool. email. I'll put those in the show notes anyways. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I'll have those in the show notes for you guys. So Paul's Twitter and, and his, uh, his university email. So that's great. So guys, for now, thanks for listening. Uh, keep down on the podcast and sharing them out. I'll talk to everyone soon. Uh, stay well and be and oh sorry excuse me second up here at the end so i'll talk to everyone soon be well and as i say at the end of every show stay strong mm-hmm.